Got a bit of an intro here before we unpack Genesis. Um, not the whole book, just uh, verses 18 through 25. But I want to, uh, man, I want to open up our time in prayer um, as we get into this four-week series where we're going to be talking about what is it that God has prepared marriage to be for us as married people, for us as singles, and also for us as the church. And we just want to look really carefully into what God's Word has says. This is a, you know, a topical message for us. Normally we go through books of the Bible, but what we're doing is we're picking a few passages that deal very, very uh, specifically with, with what God has to say about how He designed and defined marriage. And so we're going to be going after those texts, unpacking those things, and hopefully come out the other end with just a, a, a fresh and a new perspective on what our affection for God needs to be so that our marriages can actually flourish instead of flounder. So let me, uh, let, me, let me just pray for us in that. God, we recognize that without you, um, uh, we have no power in and of ourselves for these words to uh, transform our own hearts. I have no power as a pastor and a preacher. I have no magic uh, with anything that I say, Lord. So it's, it's all contained in your word, and we pray that you would illuminate our hearts, open our minds, Lord, give us eyes to see Give us affections, Lord, that have been up to this point doled out by just the struggles and the trials of life and marriage, Lord, and just create um, new pathways for us, Lord, to see you as greater and more gracious in our lives so that, man, we can just develop new affections for not only you, but for our spouses, for the marriages that exist in this church and community. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. And we all said, amen. Well, when a pastor uh, sits down to do marriage counseling, uh, one of the overwhelming desires of, of the couple that they're usually sitting down with, many couples, is that they want a fix, all right? They just tell you, just tell us, just tell us the steps that we have to take. And more specifically, what you'll usually hear is uh, tell us the steps they have to take, the person sitting next to me, so that our marriage will be fixed. Right, And so what's interesting to me about that is that if you stop and ask what else do we apply the word fixed to, um, to describe, it's interesting. We, just, we use it to describe people who struggle with substance abuse. When we talk about this word fixed, and by substance abuse, I'm not talking about people who attend our church too many times. All right, that's not what we mean when we say substance abuse here. We're going to the more traditional meaning of it. My wife is shaking her head. She's thinking, this is not starting out well for us. We got four more weeks of this, we're already drowning, all right? Um, but here's what we know about drug users, all right? Um, drug users want a fix because a fix makes them feel better in the moment, uh, but in reality, it's only prolonging their addiction, right? It's true that they feel better, but it's prolonging a sickness and an addiction. In the same way, trying to just find a, a quick fix for our marriages can make us feel better in the moment, but prolong an addiction. And that's an addiction that we have to ourselves and how we believe marriage is supposed to serve us. So something that might come as a revelation uh, for many of us concerning marriage is this. It only matters what God thinks about marriage. It only matters what God thinks about marriage. Dave Harvey, I don't know if you guys remember Dave. He was uh, preaching for us back in July. Uh, he tells us in his book, When Sinners Say I Do, he says this, that it's what we believe about God that determines the quality 
of our marriage. And then Tim Keller goes on to say in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says to have a marriage that sings requires a spirit-created ability to serve, to take yourself out of the center. So those are two massive statements we get from godly men who've written some really helpful and healthy things uh, in regards to our marriages. So three things we need to look at that these men pointed out that need to be at work are this, a focus on God, first and foremost, a focus off of ourselves, and then thirdly, a focus on serving the other. Okay, and that's where we're going to be kind of moving this morning. And given that, I, I want you guys to know, just as a married guy without a perfect marriage, right, a guy that has struggled in his marriage, Melissa, and I'll tell this story someday, Melissa and I did not start out well in our marriage. I mean, we were two of the most self-focused, godless people that you could have met that had nothing more than a nominal Christianity if it was even a Christianity at best. So given those truths, um, man, I have no quick fixes or magic tricks because those things usually come at the expense of repentance and transformation that must happen at the heart level. Now let me just qualify things a little bit. We're going to be talking about some very black and white things as we sort of root down into what I think the primary issue is um, for the flourishing of our marriage and why that doesn't happen. But I don't want you guys to think that I don't believe that this isn't nuanced and that there aren't deeply seated and cloudy issues of brokenness that come in and they feed into all the different intricacies and the details of your marriage. They do. They do. And again, given that this is just 40 minutes and we have four weeks, we're not going to be able to get into all the details of that. So what we want to do is we want to kind of wind down into sort of a broader application of what it is that God is calling you and me to live out in our marriages as a way to serve the other person and their joy. Okay? Um, It's kind of like uh, if you went to my house and you could see we have this old house. It was built in 1895, all right? I think something like that. And so what happened was when we moved in there, there was all kinds of wallpaper. And, uh, you know, we weren't so keen on the wallpaper. No offense to, to all you wallpaper junkies out there. That's not where I'm going with this. But uh, what happened was we wanted to paint. And as soon as we started tearing off, and by, by us, I mean a person that I hired, um, started to tear off the wallpaper. And we found that there was all this old plaster behind. And as you, as you try to take the wallpaper off the plaster, all the plaster comes falling out. So we're like, ah, you know? And so the guy said, you know what I can do? I I can just keep the wallpaper on there, primer the wallpaper, and again, not trying to give you a lesson in painting right now, and then just paint over the wallpaper, and you kind of won't be able to tell the difference. And I said, that, do that. Like, that's what I want right there. Um, but I think that that resembles a lot of our marriages and the effort some of us have put into our attempts at remodeling them, right? We occasionally roll a fresh coat of marriage paint in the form of whether it's a a book or or a retreat or maybe some counseling or some lifestyle changes, potentially all helpful and good things, but ultimately nothing more than uh, cosmetic touch-ups if there's not a repentant heart pulsing with the desire to please and obey God by dying to the selfish whims and desires that lurk in all of us, right? I don't know if you guys have watched the, uh, the new season of This Is Us just broke, right? So if you want to, you know, if you want to break down in tears every Tuesday nights, um, you know, you're going to want to plug into that. Um, 
But this is us, it's just, you know, it's, if you guys, it's, it's just kind of a, it's a soap opera, it's a, you know, it's a drama version of a soap opera, more or less. But um, what you see is the, 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 these characters in the story, brothers and sisters who are all in, in different relationships, and at the root of all their struggles is just this inherent self-interest. Really, at the end of the day, the issues that they're having is that they're all chasing something that they think is going to give themselves their most joy and their most happiness at the expense of the other person who they just want to kind of get on board with where they're going. And so what do we see? We see all the breakdowns and we see the trials that they experience. And we also see the ways that sometimes they discover that that's happening and they end up giving themselves to the other person and to the joy of the other person. And that's, you know, at the end and the tears start rolling and that's, that's when it gets all heartfelt and uh, sentimental. So what I want us to see as we open God's word is that Marriages that flourish are ones where husbands and wives find their greatest joy in laying down their lives and submitting themselves to the joy of the other as unto Christ. Dude, I'm telling you, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun right off the bat. But before we get in too deep, I want to address something. I want to address the singles uh, in the room. Um, And the first thing I want to say to you who are single is I need you to put your cell phones down and stop planning your calendar for the next three Sunday mornings, all right? Um, God also designed singleness, and it is highly valued by him as a means of sanctification and grace for you. Um, And we know this because the Apostle Paul told us this uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he was writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7 when he said, only let each person, he said, lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. He said, this is my rule in all of the churches. And then he goes on to say in verses 32, he says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. So given Paul's instruction for singles, we know that this is God's means of sanctification and grace for your life. And God can be trusted in that. God can be trusted in what he has assigned and called you to in this particular season of life. So if this is you, all right, here are three ways at minimum that you can be anxious for the things of the Lord and play what I would call a coveted role in the marriages that are represented here at Substance. Here's the first thing. You can pray for the marriages at Substance. Because you know, at the end of the day, marriage affects everybody. Your marriage affects every other marriage and every other single person in this church. So going before the Lord and pleading for the flourishing of our marriages is a good, godly, and I would say a vital use of your time. The second thing is you can come alongside married couples or married individuals. I think you just have a a really amazing opportunity to be an objective voice for some married people who just might be stuck, right, in a, in a difficult season of which you can be an encouraging and a wisdom-giving presence for them. Maybe you've never, maybe you've never thought of it like that, um, but that's your charge, to be invested in the health and support of God-honoring and gospel-centered marriages. And I think third is this, what Paul just laid out for us, you can pursue holiness in body and spirit. You can redeem your time because you have time to devote yourself to God in ways that he will use significantly in your life toward your joy and sanctification in him. So where a marriage relationship 
might be lacking in your life right now, God's grace will abound all the more if you seek him in the assignment that he's given you in this season. And then finally, if if you're married, here's my charge for you, given that we're talking about some of our singles, pursue and include those who are single as a means of love, hospitality, and grace in their life. Pull them in. You be a godly presence in their life where they might have some family that's lacking. Provide that means of grace for them. So what do we mean when we talk about the title, Redefining Marriage? Well, here's what I mean by that. It's easy for us to look at the state of marriage in the world and shake our fists, right, and outrage at the ways we feel marriage is being redefined. Right? You hear that a lot in Christian circles. And we churchgoers happen to do an awesome job um, of saying, that's the problem over there, right? While pointing as far away from ourselves as humanly possible. Kind of like... Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3 when each of them tried to cast blame on the other person for the breakdown in their marriage. Again, everybody but themselves was to blame for everything that started to go wrong when they had sinned against God. And again, we're going to look at that section, that passage a little more clearly in week four. But here's my argument. The problem is not that marriage has been redefined. That's not the problem. The problem is that it was mystified thousands of years ago after Adam and Eve fell into sin and gave birth to every marriage issue that you and I have ever struggled with since. See, it's just way too easy and it's way too lazy for us to say, you know, if the Supreme Court would stop trying to redefine marriage, then everything would be fixed, you know? Instead of looking into the heart of our own marriages and repent of the ways that we've misdefined what God originally designed and defined them to be. You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. The church will never be prevented from modeling God-defined marriages. Like, man, we can always do that, right? It doesn't matter what's going on in the government. It doesn't matter what's going on in the culture. It doesn't matter what this church, man, how they're leaning left and how they're, how they're misdefining marriage. No, man, we can, we can hold to what God has laid out for us to do, and there's never going to be anything preventing us other than our own sin from doing that. But you know what happens is if we take a peek into our own marriages in this church, man, we're going to find some things, right? We're going to find some ugliness. We're going to find varying degrees of, of selfishness and abuse, and neglect, and unfaithfulness, and backbiting, and animosity, and unkindness, and bitterness, and and unwillingness, and unwillingness to live a lifestyle of submitting ourselves to a selfless pursuit and devotion to God for the flourishing of our marriages. A famous line that came out of the Protestant Reformation, which, by the way, celebrates its 500-year anniversary uh, this month, is this. The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the Word of God. Now, in the same way, our marriages are always in need of being redefined according to the Word of God so that they experience sanctifying conformity to Christ. So when we pursue God through obedience to His Word, something happens. We're experiencing a flourishing marriage as one of the byproducts. 
So as we pick up here in Genesis 2.18, we're going to see three things unfold as God establishes this institution of marriage. We're going all the way back to the beginning to see what he was thinking when he put this thing into gear. And we're going to see these three things. Number one, that God serves Adam. Number two, Adam serves Eve. And then three, they serve one another, and the result is that, I'm going to keep this PG-13 all morning, the result is that they were naked and unashamed before God and with each other. So let me just dive right in without any further commentary here. Genesis 2, I'm going to read verses 18 through 25, and that's where we're going to camp out this morning. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's God's word for us. So as we immerse ourselves in these passages, we see that God designed something that is meant, that was intended to contribute to our flourishing and fulfillment because it finds its source in his grace and in his kindness as he looks out on, on Adam's situation. Everything God creates in Genesis is made first and foremost for his glory. So anything that expresses and advances his glory will ultimately bring flourishing and fulfillment to us. That's the give and take. So when we read Genesis 2, what we do is we get this unique glimpse into a world where God's glory within his design for marriage had not been obscured by sin yet. This, this was all of it in its pure, unadulterated glory. I don't know if you guys have ever seen some of these websites that kind of show the abandoned cities and buildings. There's this one I love called the Ruins of Detroit, right? And if you guys have been to Detroit in the last 10 years, it's just mind-numbing to see how the town has just fallen into just total disrepair and disarray. And uh, some of these photographers started this website called the Ruins of Detroit, and they go and they just take these fantastic images of, of some of these just amazing ruins of these places and these palaces and these theaters and these, 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 these uh, areas that were once just these amazing sort of monuments that have now just been just fallen into total just dust and disrepair. But what they do is they show you what it originally looked like and then they show you what it's become because of all of the years of neglect and abuse. So when we get to verse 18, we get a picture of what marriage looked like before the fall. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Three things jump out as we see what God was thinking when he designed marriage. Number one is that it was sovereignly determined. God looked down and said, not good. He looked down, he said, not good 
that man should be alone. He sovereignly came to something. He determined something. Two, it was intentionally decided. He said, I will make. God made a decision about something that he was going to do for the greatest portion of his glory and our flourishing. He said, I will make. And then thirdly, we see that it was exclusively designed. He said, a helper fit. He had something in mind, very specifically, very exclusively, when he said, I will make a helper fit for Adam. It's kind of like a painter, right? When a painter purchases a blank canvas, he or she decides how to fill it, right? They purchase the canvas. It's up to them with the tools that they have to put, an, uh, to put a, a portrait on it as to whatever their decision was and how to fill it. In marriage, what we see God being the creator painter of all creator painters, right? In marriage, God creates both the canvas and the content with which to fill it. So it was determined. It was decided. It was designed by God's grace and kindness. Now, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis, you notice that all of creation is described as good until we get to Adam, who is alone. And God makes a declaration that it was not good for him to be without a helper fit for him. Now, what we know about the word good is that God, who again, well, what did we just say? He creates the canvas and the content to fill the canvas. He gets to define what the word good means. Now, we don't get to do that because God is creator. He gets to define what the word good means. We run off, we run off that definition for our flourishing. He gets to describe that. And again, what we want to understand here is that good doesn't mean preference. See, we think of good, we think of preference, typically. You know, so Melissa and I, have, we, have, we have preferences, right? She likes action-adventure movies, and I love love stories because we're complicated like that, right? <laughs> Man, those are preferences. Those are preferences that we argue about a lot, right? Marriage was not God's preference, that he picked from a sea of options and choices that he just laid out before himself, right? God never said, you know what? Marriage just happens to be my jam, Adam, but that doesn't mean it has to be yours. That's not what God says here. What it says is that he served Adam by establishing companionship exclusively for Adam. And man, that should just change. That should change something in us. That should change how we view marriage at even a cursory level as a way that God observed us and then served us through his grace and kindness. God supplied something lacking in Adam's life that would not only serve Adam, but be responsible for serving the entire human race. That's how far-reaching this grace and this kindness was that God gave to Adam. Why? Well, one reason, there's many reasons, one reason that I'm going to key in on here is that Adam had absolutely no ability to meet those needs apart from God. He had no ability to do that on his own. Everything Adam was about to receive was a very specific gift from God, who again, didn't pick the wrong size, didn't pick the wrong color, did not choose the wrong model. In fact, we see an intentionality here with God, with everything that he does, because everything he does is exactly the way he wants to do everything that he does. Look down at verse 19. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So we kind of want to just get a picture of what's going on here. God had not placed Adam in the middle of the Sahara Desert 
or Death Valley, right? He was in a garden paradise with beasts and birds who, by the way, had not developed an appetite for human flesh yet, right? So he was in a very unique scenario here. And, you know, it's like every time I pet a cat, you know, I'm reminded that the only reason they don't eat me is because I'm bigger, right? Different times back then. A cat, not a fitting counterpart, you know, at the end of the day, especially uh, if I was a little shorter than I am. Now, listen, animals can be great companions, but they lack ability, okay? So what God is trying to point out here is that Adam wasn't alone in the sense that there was nothing else around him, but he was alone in the sense that he didn't have a fitting counterpart. Again, animals can be great companions, but they lack ability to interact with humans in a way that models our interaction with God, okay? That's what God was driving at here when he was looking down at Adam and he was seeing that lack. That interaction with God is a relationship that is meant to be personal. And Adam couldn't get that by just hanging out in the wild kingdom and naming all the animals, right? Animals were unfitting counterparts. You know what else was unfitting for him? His career, right? Let's go back to verse 15 and read verse 15. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So again, Adam was was given a job. Adam was given authority and responsibility over the garden and animals. But here's what's interesting for our purposes. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to compensate for Adam's aloneness. And you know what this does for us? This gives us such great insight into what God was thinking as he observed and he served Adam. And a reminder to us that we have a God who is intimately involved in the deepest longing of our hearts, even when we don't know what that longing is. He provided Adam with a living space and a work environment that was good, but incapable of providing the kind of companionship that God was going to ordain for ultimate flourishing and fruitfulness. I mean, do you see the intentionality of God here as he looked down on Adam? How he carefully determined what Adam needed and then decided to design it specifically for him. Man, that should just speak volumes to those of you who have marriage that resemble Adam's life before he was married, right? Because maybe you have a marriage that functions more like a business deal. You have authority and you have responsibility. They have authority and responsibility, and you just, again, conduct the moving parts that you've been given to keep this whole thing rolling, right? Or maybe you have a marriage where you've become married to your career, You don't even know who you're married to anymore, but it feels more like you're married to your career, right? Which has become your go-to for affirmation, satisfaction, and affection. Because what we see here is that at some point, that falls short and that collapses. Adam was given authority and responsibility in the workplace, but it was unfitting companionship. It wasn't good enough for what he ultimately needed. And I think it's also important to point out that Adam's run in the wild animal kingdom was not an experiment that failed. Okay, we can look at this and go, well, just, did God make the wrong choice here? Was he just kind of trying some things out? No, it was not an experiment that failed. You know, God is not Thomas Edison. You know, Thomas Edison created 10,000 versions of his light bulb before he found one that worked. And his big quote is, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. I don't know if that was Thomas's voice or not, right? It's impossible for God to be a failed inventor, right? You know, like I was really hoping it was going to work out between Adam and this chimpanzee, but they just never seem to click, 
right? I mean, that, that's not what he's saying here. That's not what was happening here as Adam was given dominion over the animals. On the flip, nowhere does it say, and I think this is interesting to point out and to think about, nowhere does it say that Adam was giving God suggestions for what he would think might fill his loneliness, right? He wasn't complaining because he hadn't been on a date recently, right? God was observing and serving Adam intimately involved with his needs. This tells us a lot about God's heart, doesn't it? In serving the creatures he created and then how deeply God oriented and God ordained marriage actually is. You guys following me on that? How, how deeply he provides not what we want. Again, Adam didn't give him any suggestions, but what we need, which is what we want, ultimately. You look down on verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So this is what we see, right? We see God as the master craftsman. He caused, he crafted, he fashioned Eve from his own hands. He gives Adam here some divine anesthesia, I don't know, uh, and he creates a woman from his rib. Now listen, God could have created Eve any way he wanted, right? But what does he decide to do? He decides to put Adam in a vulnerable position. He has him fall into a deep sleep, and then he opens up his side, does a little reconstructive surgery to our boy Adam, right? And he forms Eve from one of his ribs, from Adam's insides. God wanted marriage to be birthed into that level of closeness and intimacy so that every time Adam cared for his wife, it would be like he was caring for himself because why? Because she was himself. She was himself. So in the same way that God served Adam by creating Eve from Adam, Adam knew instinctively that his calling was to care for and serve Eve. Look what it says in verse 23. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam wakes up from what was a, apparently outpatient surgery because he's, he's just popping up, okay? Takes one look at Eve and the dude writes a poem, right? I mean, this dude is, I don't know what he was looking at, but he's stoked, all right? But again, it's, it's, not, just, it's not just flowery language here, right? It's not just, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. Like, that, like he's not doing that. That's not what he's saying at all there. Although maybe he probably meant that, uh, but that's not what he said. There's, there's, a, there's a declaration, actually, in this, in this poem. She is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. She was taken out of him, and she was named accordingly by him. So by virtue of the name Adam gives to define the whole female population from here on out, he implies, listen, a joyful responsibility of serving and sanctifying her by that comment because of where she came from. Paul breaks this down in Ephesians 5, 28, when he says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body because he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So we can see how this, how this, this sort of pathway of servanthood started by God to Adam extends from Adam 
to Eve as he makes this declaration in this poem that he writes when God gives her to him. God serves Adam. Adam serves Eve, and this leads to husband and wife serving one another. If you look down in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we get three really important things from verses 24 through 25. We get commitment, companionship, and cultivation are established in those verses. We get commitment. Leave and cleave. So what this illustrated to Adam was that Eve now becomes the most important relationship in his life under God's. That's how God established the marriage relationship. You've got to leave mom and dad, right? Because there's something that the Lord has bound together in your life as the means of a new way of being sanctified under his guidance and his care. So God establishes commitment in marriage. He also establishes companionship. It says he would hold fast to his wife. God establishes marriage as something that's permanent. It's a union, but it's supposed to be permanent. It's supposed to stay together. In other words, when we look at this word fast, what do we think of when we think of a fast? Well, we think I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately abstaining from food, right? And we think about a fast in, 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 in church life or in Christian circles, we deliberately abstain from food so that we can be uncluttered in our approach to God through prayer. So to hold fast to our spouse uh, simply means that we are deliberately abstaining from all others so that we have permanent union with the one person that God has given us, right? And then the third thing that God establishes here is cultivation. They become one flesh. This marriage gig is meant to be an intimate spiritual union where you're no longer your, your own. You're no longer your own person. And then the result of that is that they are naked and unashamed before God and one another. Unashamed means flourishing. It means sin and self-interest had not come between them and marred their commitment, companionship, and cultivation of intimacy yet. That's why they were naked and unashamed because all of those things hadn't come in by virtue of their sin to obscure those things that God had originally laid out for their flourishing and ultimately their fruitfulness. And so as we look down at verses 23 and 24, I mean, this has implications for us. This is the relationship that we experience in Christ, right? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, so you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So we see even the far-reaching implications that God has as he defined through his design of marriage. So this is what God was thinking when he instituted and established marriage, which is not a human invention. It's not a human institution. God serves Adam. Adam serves Eve. And they serve one another. And the result is that they were naked and unashamed before God and with each other. So that is this view, that is this picture before sin had entered the world. So here's a couple things in closing that I want to share with you. The church can have an over-focus on marriage in and of itself, right? We have marriages. All of us have, in some shape or shade, 
We have broken marriages, right? Because we're broken people that come together and don't form a perfect union, but we've performed, we, we, we come under something that is, that is not as it should be, right? But when we focus on marriage over and above the God who made marriage, what we're in danger of is making marriage our God. And so that's what happens sometimes if we do this focus on marriage and what we need to fix marriage and give me some tips just give me like three ways that I can make her happy. Give me three ways I can shut him up, but he'll be content, right? Some of you think that if you just did more, if you would just do what they wanted, you guys following me here? You'd have a better marriage. And some of you have a spouse who is gloriously happy to remind you of that anytime that you ask, right? But that's not what God was thinking when he brought Eve to Adam. Marriage was never created for us to feed our own self-interests, but to serve the interests of another person as the way to finding our greatest fulfillment when done as unto the Lord. This is how we need to keep redefining our marriages. This is the principle that we need to go back to. This is the godly, biblical truth that we need to immerse ourselves in because if we don't, follow me, why does it matter what God thinks about anything? Why does it matter what God thinks about anything? Some of us take God seriously when it comes to salvation, right? I mean, we preach that pretty heavy here. Like, we're just, we're just going on and on about that all the time, you know? By faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. Boom, boom, boom. Like, you guys are all nodding your heads like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm for that. I'm singing it. Like, I'm in. I got the fist up. Let's sing that Getty song again. Like, we're all about that. But we fail to believe that when God has declared about marriage and all other things is equally as true. So if God tells us that salvation is by those things and that, in effect, marriage is by those things, why don't we believe that? Why don't we believe that applies? It's because of our sin. It's because of our sin that our hearts are so drawn to doing anything other than what God has given us for the flourishing of our marriages, which is, again, dying to ourselves and serving one another like Christ served us. It doesn't mean that there aren't nuances in that, okay? So this is a black and white statement that shoots out. So I want, you, I want to make sure you guys understand that I'm, I'm not saying that all this is contained and narrowed down and makes everything clear and simple, but it does give us the foundation. It does give us the foundation of which all these other things that are broken, are going to flow out of and begin to experience restoration. Do you think that some other method is actually going to work? Marriage is the result of God's grace and kindness to us so that we might have a, a physical expression that helps us understand the depth of love God had for us when he sent Christ, who did what? Who served and sacrificed for us. And you know what, man? It's not easy to grasp that. So don't hear me as saying that I'm just laying it out there. I'm giving it to you. Leave today. Marriage is fixed. Everything's awesome. It's hard to grasp. Paul says in Ephesians 5.23, you know what Paul says? He says, it's not only hard to grasp, it's a mystery. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, talking about this love for one another that is a model of Christ's love for us. But what this does is it kind of stops us in our tracks. In a good way, when we consider what underlying focus and purpose that marriage really is supposed to have. And it should sober us, all right? I need you guys to hear this part. It should sober us when we think about some of the ways we treat our spouses with so much unkindness. 
So much irreverence, so much intolerance and eye-rolling and disgust. And then think about what an affront it is to God who looked down on Adam with love and compassion and provided him with an exclusive companion that would lead him back to the grace and kindness that God had from him as he looked down at his state. Every time Adam looked at Eve, held her hand, kissed her cheek, served her, sacrificed for her, he would be reminded of the grace and kindness of God. Isn't that amazing to think about that? Because the only fix for any marriage starts with faithfulness to God first. Repenting for the ways that you and I have misdefined marriage and turned it into a feeding trough for our own self-interests and pleasures. Because you know what? It's not all those other things, dude. It's not. All those other things. Like if I were to talk to you right now and say, lay it out, what's the problem? And you know, all you guys are going to go, man, it's communication. We don't talk. It's intimacy. We never hook up. I'm going to keep it at that. It's all of these other things, okay? And you're going to say, it's all of that. It's that. And it's her doing that. And it's him doing that. And for some of you guys, it'll be, yeah, it's me. I do that, right? And that's going to be your go-to when contemplating what the issues are with your marriage. But you know what the real issue is? The real issue is that you love yourself more than Christ. And your spouse suffers under the weight and pain of your self-love. That is what is going on at the surface. And that's why we start here. We're only doing four weeks, but that's why we start here. Because if you think you can fulfill your role as husband and wife detached from a deeper affection for Christ, you will constantly be misdefining marriage and be living with someone who is suffering under the weight of your self-interest and pleasure. And let me just say it a little more sharply. If there is no affection stirring in your heart for Jesus, as I am speaking and we are going through this text, if there is no desire that rises up in you to obey God from a love for Jesus, then marriage, brother or sister, is not your problem. But it's marriage to Christ that's missing. Right? It's kind of like duct tape. Some of you dudes, I'm just going to lay this one out on the dudes. And maybe my wife, because she's handy around the house. But some of you dudes are all about duct tape, right? When I go to your house, I'm, I look up the air conditioning vent, and it's all duct taped. And I look at your car, and you got the muffler, and it's all duct taped or whatever. Like everything is, like your answer for everything is duct tape. Like, dude, I don't need to fix this. I don't need to replace this. I just need to patch it. And that's how you look. That's the lens that you look through for all of life, including your marriage. Just give me something, Ronnie. This is not helpful. What you're describing is work. What you're describing is something that causes me to have to pause Give me some duct tape is really what you're saying. Jesus didn't duct tape, all right? He didn't tell his disciples, look, boys, allegedly I have to end my run here on the cross, but I'm wondering, uh, it's just a thought, uh, that uh, if I just lay out some good principles to live by, then that might do the trick and I can kind of bypass the cross. He didn't duct tape. He died. He denied himself. Ronnie, that's... Depressing. No, it's not. Ronnie, I'm telling you that's depressing. It's not depressing. The cross is not depressing. It's what leads to resurrection. It, 
It's what leads to rejoicing. It's what leads to the redefinition of everything in our life that is lying in a puddle of brokenness. Well, Ronnie, that's all fine, but I'm waiting until next week when you tell my wife that she has to submit to me. That's coming. We're going to chat about that next week. But what that really means, if you're somebody who's thinking that and on the flip, you know, I'm just waiting for you to tell my husband he has to die for me. What that means is you have a heart that is unwilling to listen to what God thinks. Look, if I get hit by a school bus this week and the series ends, this sermon alone and all of its inadequacies is enough to understand God's kind and gracious design and intention for your marriage. So how then do you begin? How do you begin then to redefine your marriage? You do it like this. You do it by re-denying yourself, by giving yourselves to one another. God gives to Adam. Adam gives to Eve. They give to one another, and after they fall, God gives Jesus to all. The pattern here is give, because giving is love, and love finds its origins in God who loved us in our rebellion enough to give us Jesus for our restoration. Now, let me just restate this point because I want to make sure that we're really clear. Don't hear me trying to reduce all of this too much. There are some of you who have had a lot of pain and brokenness and dysfunction in your past that deeply affects your marriage. And that's probably most of us here. So sitting down with a godly pastor or a counselor can help you sift and sort through some of these things. What we are here to do is talk to you and discuss with you how God intends our marriage to be in the platform that he has built and provided for what we are to stand on and step out from. Do you guys hear me on that? I'm going to end with a quote from Tim Keller. And he says this. He says, In any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. Maybe you're in one of those seasons or spells right now. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant. It's a commitment. It's a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, and eager to please. But in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. And that's the big word to end all of this on, is that we love because God loves us. We serve one another because God served us. We give our lives to our spouse because God gave us Christ. And in that, we find the origins of everything that will be good for our flourishing and will be the answer to all the brokenness that shoots out from that, that God in His grace over time will be intimately 
involved in healing as we step out from that foundation. Let's pray. God, thank you for these truths, these hard truths. Lord, we all come before you with broken marriages. We're broken people. And some of us are in varying degrees of hurt and need varying degrees of help, Lord, with these places that we find ourselves lodged in. Lord, give us your grace. Help us to remember as we look at our spouses, Lord, of the grace and kindness that was in your heart when you gave them to us. And it was for our flourishing and for our fruitfulness that you provided them. Lord, help us to see you more clearly and more dearly as we look at the man or the woman that you have provided for us. And Lord, help our marriages to be a reflection of self-denial and sacrifice and spending our time looking to the joy of others, to the joy of our spouse, to be the place where we find our deepest joy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.